In Cape Town, South Africa, there is an unfinished bridge. It's called the Foreshore Freeway Bridge. Maybe some of you have seen it. Conceptualized and designed back in the late 1960s, it was to have been a bridge from the edge of the city to the heart of Cape Town. In the 1970s, however, unforeseen budget constraints and changing dynamics in the city brought the entire project to a screeching halt. In 1977, construction on the bridge was officially ceased. And the bridge has remained in its unfinished state in a very busy portion of Cape Town for the last 45 years. There has been some recent conversation about returning to the project for the purpose of finishing the bridge. Interestingly, many of the citizens of Cape Town, of Cape Town are, are against that, said one citizen. Leave the bridge just as it is. Allow it to stand as a monument for all that is unfinished. Allow the bridge to stand as a monument for all that is unfinished. It is true, I suppose, that when the time comes for us to breathe our final breath, there's a better than average chance that we will leave at least one bridge unfinished in our personal pilgrimage. Your unfinished bridge might be a relationship that you could never take to its highest potential. Or maybe a vocational goal that you could never quite achieve. Or a responsibility that you could never fully embrace. Or perhaps a reconciliation that could never strike the right balance of repentance and forgiveness. The shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville this last week illuminated once again that we have several unfinished bridges in our society, do we not? Including the unfinished bridge of sensible, urgent gun legislation. An unfinished bridge about which the church can no longer afford to be silent in this culture, even if there is not yet complete consensus about how that bridge might be finished. The point, the point is that in the multiple distortions of a world that groans for redemption, there are some bridges that go unfinished. Whether it be the literal bridge above Cape Town or the metaphorical bridges of an unachieved agenda. Thomas Merton put it this way, if we examine ourselves carefully, we shall all see that we all have unfinished bridges. True freedom, Merton went on to say, true freedom is embracing the grace that finishes what we cannot build. As I pause today with you in quietness to reflect upon Jesus' suffering and death on the cross, the utterance from the crucified Christ that first comes to my mind, and this has long been the case, I don't know why, but the utterance from the crucified Christ that first comes to my mind is an utterance recorded in John's Gospel. We heard it moments ago. 
in his pain, in his suffering, after receiving a sip of vinegar through a sponge, the Gospel writer tells us that Jesus speaks these three words. It is finished. And with that, he bows his head and gives up his spirit. And I find myself today wondering with particular urgency what Jesus had in his mind when he spoke those words. What did he sense was being finished in that moment, the moment in which he was breathing his last breath? What did he sense was being finished there? Was he speaking simply of obvious realities like the finishing of his life, the finishing of his suffering, the finishing of his ministry? Perhaps that would have made sense. Or might Jesus have had something grander in mind? Might he have been thinking about something in the bigger picture, something more historically comprehensive and theologically significant? When Jesus declared, it is finished, might he have been asking us to believe that a previously unfinished bridge has now been mystically and irrevocably completed. What do I mean by bridge? I guess I mean, I guess I mean the relentless and reconciliatory grace of a God who would settle for nothing less than the restoration of a distorted humankind and the abundant life that we have been created to live. When Jesus declared with his last breath, it is finished. Might he have been asking us to believe that a previously unfinished bridge of reconciling grace has now been completed all because of the scandalous efforts of a God who saw fit to crawl onto a tree and die? In the history of Christian theology, I'm absolutely convinced that there is no subject that has received more attention than the significance of Jesus' death on the cross. In fact, over the centuries, there have been multiple theories that have emerged. In theological circles, they're often referred to as theories of the atonement. They are theories about the significance of Jesus' death on the cross, and each theory posits its own speculation as to what transpired on the cross. And for our purposes here, we do not have time to explore any of the theories. I was thinking that maybe next Lent, it would be a great idea to have some small group Bible study for those of you who are interested in this kind of thing, just to explore those different theories of the atonement because they're compelling. They're interesting. They reveal something about the era out of which they emerged, but more importantly, they help us to understand with greater clarity what we believe and what we don't believe about the character of God and God's methodology. But I mention those theories of the atonement today simply because their existence bears witness to the fact that something transpired on the cross. Something transpired on the cross that was far too expansive to be contained in a single theory. There have to be multiple theories of the atonement because no single theory can do the cross justice. And if I were to identify a common theological denominator of all of these different theories of the atonement, these theories of the significance of the cross, if you were at, to ask me to identify a single common theological denominator that somehow connects these different theories, it would be the theological concept of reconciliation. 
And I say that because each one of the theories emerges from the conviction that the cross somehow redemptively brought divinity and humanity together in a way that was as sacrificial for God as it was salvific for humankind. Reconciliation. In the New Testament book of Romans, we're told something very interesting. We're told that while we were still enemies, alienated, while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God. And the Greek word for reconciliation calls to mind big ticket reconciliation, like the bridging of a chasm. We have been reconciled to God. How? Through the death of God's Son which I think is the Bible's way of asking us to believe that somehow, and by the way, if you're going to traffic in Christian theology, you had better make peace with that word somehow because sometimes that's as specific as it gets. Somehow, because Jesus was who he was on the cross, he brought the very person of God into the mess, the sinful mess of human violence. Somehow, because Jesus was who he was on the cross, he extended one of his arms mystically into the past and the other arm mystically into the future and gathered into the very heart of God every soul that ever lived, every soul that ever will live, every circumstance that has ever transpired, which is why theologian Paul Tillich often refers or often referred to the cross as the eternal now. Tillich believed that past, present, and future became concurrent with what was transpiring on the cross. It was that significant. This idea that Jesus extended his arms into the past and future and gathered into himself every circumstance, including the shooting in Nashville, including these tornadoes that have ravaged our country over this last couple of weeks, thereby bridging what felt like an agonizing chasm between heaven's love and humankind's madness. It is finished, Jesus declares. And when he said that, could he be asking us to believe that a previously unfinished bridge of reconciling grace has now been completed? A bridge between a desperate humankind and the very heart of God. In the first two years of my pastoral appointment at a church that I once served in western Pennsylvania, 24 people who were somehow connected to that church, either directly through membership or indirectly through friendship or family. In my first two years in this appointment, 24 people who were somehow connected to the church died as a result of drug overdose. All were under the age of 30. It was part of a heroin epidemic that ravaged that community. And so the church that I was serving worked very hard to develop several um, addiction recovery ministries and grief support ministries. But beyond that, a team of people came together for the purpose of exploring what it could look like, what it could mean to create a new weekly worship experience to which everyone would be invited, but in which the liturgy and the language would always have a particular connection to addiction and addiction, to re and addiction recovery. And the end result of that was a Saturday evening service for which none of us really had time. 
but a Saturday evening service in which the preaching and the music and the prayer always spoke a particular word of encouragement to addicts and those who were walking alongside them. And early on in the development of that new service, the the team that was putting it together realized that we have to call this worship service something. We can't simply call it worship. We have to call it something. That was their conviction. So they came up with all of these different ideas. We should call it this. We should call it that. And a woman on that planning team whose name was Catherine spoke up with this. Hey, she said, I have an idea. Don't know if it's a good one or not, but why don't we call this new worship service the bridge? Why the bridge, Catherine? Well, she said, I... I'm thinking about this in a couple of ways. In the first place, we're close to Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh is known as the city of bridges. But more importantly, doesn't the Bible, doesn't the Bible say something about Jesus' death on the cross being like a bridge, reconciling human beings to God? Doesn't the Bible say something about that? And if the, if the cross is that, if the cross really is a bridge, then wouldn't it be the kind of bridge upon which addicts and other lost souls could walk on a one day at a time journey across the chasm of whatever it is that they're dealing with their brokenness their their addiction they could they could walk on this bridge in a one day at a time journey back into the life that God created them to live wouldn't the cross be that kind of a bridge and we all sat there realizing that we were listening to something truthful and so we called this worship service the bridge and the image that we put on the bulletin every week was the image of a cross Hard to describe, but bridging a chasm. The cross is a bridge. And on the first night that that worship service was held, a young man came running up to me with this urgency. He had been clean for a month and a half. And when he walked up to me following the worship service, he was pointing to his bulletin. He was pointing to the cross. And he said, Reverend Eric, don't know why, but before I leave the building today, I just needed to tell you something. I just needed to tell you that I'm standing on the bridge of the cross because, quite frankly, I don't have anywhere else to stand. To which I responded, that's good because, quite frankly, I don't have anywhere else to stand either. So let's stand on that bridge together. It is finished. Could Jesus have been telling us that a previously unfinished bridge in a way that we can't fathom or fit into an equation, could it be that he was telling us that a previously unfinished bridge has now been completed? A bridge of reconciling grace, all because of the efforts, scandalous efforts of a God who saw fit to crawl onto a tree and die. I don't know about you, friends, but as I reflect upon the cross this year, I am particularly grateful that we have a God who builds bridges over all kinds of troubled water. Amen.